Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to focus particularly on verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're still talking about the work of God, and it's very important I go back to the last message and bring you up to speed. What's happening in Corinth? You know, if you keep this in your mind, we've got a group of people that refuse to grow up. And they, the symptom of that is that they're attaching themselves to men rather than attaching themselves to Christ. Paul says back in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas. And what he wants them to realize is, Cephas, by the way, Simon Peter, he wants them to understand the futility of attaching yourself to any one human being. What he's saying is these preachers are preaching the right message, but really they're just vessels through which God is doing his work. Now, of course, Paul founded the church of Corinth. Apollos followed him. You can see why they would be uh, uh, loving these men and attaching themselves to these men. Cephas, by the way, Simon Peter was the unsung leader of the whole church at that time. But what he's saying is, don't attach yourself to the vessel as if that vessel has something you don't have. All of us have received the same Christ. You have exactly what we have, gifted differently maybe, called differently, but attach yourself to Christ. That was the argument of Paul in the earlier chapters when he said, I wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in my name. He's trying to point them back to the fact that they need to be attached to the Lord Jesus. Never attach yourself to a man. You see, first of all, no man can do the works of the Father. He's a vessel through which the Father does his works. And Paul brings this out very clearly. He talks about those works. First of all, the grace that enabled the work. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. This is our last message, but just in a way of bringing us up to date. Verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. In other words, according to the grace, kata. It means a, reflecting the measure, not of me, but of him. And he has enabled me to build the foundation of Jesus Christ in your lives. Grace is the enabling power of God. But then secondly, Paul also showed the warning that accompanied his work. Now, Paul's, Paul is about to say some tough things. He's been saying some tough things. And he warns everyone about how they build upon the foundation of Christ. 
It's very obvious that Corinth was trying to get into the church rather than the church into Corinth. And of course, Corinth was the most wicked and most wealthy city of that time and everything was going on. And their, their human wisdom that they elevated up here on a platform and all these different things were affecting the church. And what Paul is saying to them, you better be careful how you build upon the foundation which has been laid. Now, he's, he's specifically talking about the teachers and preachers that followed him, but he's also bringing in all of us. Every one of us need to be careful how we build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. When we get saved, something begins. It does not end. There's a building that starts taking place. The foundation when we receive Christ is laid into our lives. Then we build upon that foundation. Colossians says that as you have received him, so walk ye in him. So by faith in him and his word is the way we build upon the foundation. If we build any other way, we better watch out. And that's what Paul is saying here in the last part of verse 10. He says, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it, that foundation which has been laid. So the grace that enabled the work, and then he talks about the warning that accompanied the work, and then thirdly, and that's where we've stayed, the test that will determine the work. This is where we left off the last time. Paul is showing the supreme reason for not attaching yourself to man. One day, each one of us will stand before Christ. We won't stand there with Paul or Apollos or Cephas, will stand on our own. And this is what Paul is trying to show them. Why attach yourself to man? He's not going to do you any good when you stand before God one day. You better live attached to Christ, walking on your own two feet in His power, enabled by His grace. And that way, the house is being built properly. And you will have nothing to be ashamed of when you stand before Jesus in that day. Now, remember here. When Paul talks about this test that all of us are going to have to stand before God and be tested one day, when he talks about it, in no way is he talking about our salvation. Understand that. The man is not going to be proven by the fire. It's the works of the man that will be proven by the fire. So remember that. Nothing can threaten what you have in Jesus Christ. It says earlier in chapter 1, we are being kept blameless until the day of Christ. Not sinless, blameless. In other words, that no accusation can be made against me or you by man that would in any way threaten our eternal destiny we have in Jesus Christ. That's what that means. So he's not talking about salvation, but he is talking about the works that we do now having been saved. Not proving the man, but proving the works. Now the three things that I want us to see about this test this morning. To me, this is one of the most sobering messages that Paul has brought up. And remember, again, this is an infant church. They will not grow up. They have chosen to be babies in Christ. They've, they've evidenced this by attaching themselves to men. Later on, attaching themselves to gifts. Anything that pampers and pleases the flesh. And Paul is trying to pull them back to dead center and say, buddy, you better live attached to Christ. There's going to be a test. Now, the first thing about this test is it is an individual Test. It is an individual test. Look at verse 13 one more time. He says, each man's work will become evident. It's amazing how we believe the lie that we're not going to be accountable for what we do. You know, when I moved to Chattanooga, I went down to the telephone company and signed up for a telephone. I went over, now no, no illustration like this ever fully illustrates a spiritual point, but there's sort of something here. I went down to the gas company, signed up for the gas. Went over to the electric company, signed up there. You know, I've enjoyed the privileges of using the telephone and the gas and the electric, all, all, electricity all this time. 
But here's a strange thing. Every month I get this thing in the mail that holds me accountable for the privilege that I'm enjoying. And it's a little bill <laughs> that says I must pay it. Now, that's not exactly the way it is in the spiritual world, but the, the idea of accountability, we're accountable in everything in human life, but when it comes to the church, oh, great, we can do what we want to do and be a Christian. No, you can't. No, you can't. There's going to be an individual accounting one day before God. The term each man in verse 13 should cause all, every believer to pay attention. It's the word hesketos. It comes from the word hikos, which means separate, another individual, each one separately from another. And again, I bring back up, Paul is not going to stand there with us. Apollos is not going to stand there with us. Chuck Swindoll is not going to stand there with us. John MacArthur is not going to stand there with us. We're going to stand on our own one day before God. What Paul did as a vessel while he was there in Corinth, God working through him, it's not going to help the Corinthians at all. They need now, having received the message that he brought to them, having had the foundation laid, which is Christ Jesus, they need now to be vessels through which God can do his work and so that the building in their life can be built. But what Paul did, what Apollos did, what Cephas did will not count for them. That's why you never attach yourself to men. We have bookites and tapeites and conferenceites and everything else in America today. People following men around as if they have something we don't have. That's crazy. Peter himself said, to those who have received a like faith such as ours, we didn't receive anything less or anything more than they did. And God wants to do his work through us just like he did in them. Each man's work will become evident. Now, the word for work there is the word ergon. Ergon is in a secular sense is used of it's an employment word. If you work for somebody, it's the work you do out of necessity for that person. And therefore, at the end of the week, you get a paycheck. That's kind of the secular idea of the word work. You may be here this morning and be one of the most successful businessmen Chattanooga has ever known. And God has blessed you. You have, you have worked up the ladder. You're president of your company. You've made millions. And that's wonderful. And there's nothing wrong with that. And the world rewards you for that. However, if you are a believer, when you stand before God, all that you did, all the success will mean nothing if it has not been in response to your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a different set of scales when God puts us to the test. Every man's work and it's spiritual work, that work which Paul says that grace has to enable. Every man has the same opportunity to let God work through his or her life. We have an employer, so to speak, if you want to put it in secular terms, that's the Lord Jesus. He is Lord of our life. That's not, a, that's not an option. He is Lord of our life. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 1. And I told you this will keep coming to play. You'll get tired of me going back to it, but this is the grid that you have to look at 1 Corinthians through. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he tells us very clearly that we are owned, that we're, we're God's possession. We work for him. It says, to the church of God, which is in, at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now in that verse, he says, that we've been sanctified. Sanctified, we'll go over it again. Hagiazo means to be put in a class all by itself. It means to be separated apart unto God. Has the idea of someone who's unclean and he's been washed now in the blood. He's been taken out of Adam. He's been put over into Christ and he has a brand new purpose. 
amongst humanity. He has one supreme purpose because God lives in him. He has sanctified him. He has set him apart unto himself. And that one supreme purpose is now to live set apart unto the one who has set you apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. You say, what are they, what are they called? What are the people called that are sanctified? Saints. <laughs> Next time you look in the mirror, and we've said this how many times, look in the mirror. I'm serious. It'll help you. Look in the mirror in the morning, but before you take your shower even. That'll even better. That'll even do it better. Before you've even cleaned up, just look in the mirror. And after you've closed your eyes three or four times because you can't take the sight, just say, good morning, saint. <laughs> I have but one purpose today. Oh, yes, I have many purposes, but one purpose should dominate all the others. And that is, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm a vessel today through which God wants to do his work. And that's so clear in here. Every man's work. You see, that building is being built by the choices that we make every day in our life. A believer that won't get serious about his calling wants to live like the Corinthian, not depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who would rather attach himself to man, even to the exclusion of others, will one day stand before Jesus Christ. And suddenly, this truth will come back to haunt him because he can't go back and relive it. When salvation occurs in a person's life, something starts and it continues. And then one day, Jesus brings us up to be with himself. And then the building that we have built the choices that we have made will be put to his test, not our test, but it will be made manifest. That which he allowed Christ to do through us will stand the test. It'll make it. But that which we've done for him or for ourselves will not make it. And so it's an individual test. No one will stand with you. It'll be your work. You know, I I'm really intrigued with Tiger Woods these days. I know y'all are too. I, I never have watched a golf tournament. It's more boring than a baseball game. I like basketball and football next, but now when you get to baseball, that's getting slow. Matter of fact, I think I've discovered the game they're going to play in hell. <laughs> it's this game they play, cricket. You ever seen cricket play? That has got to be the worst game, the most boring game. It never stops. And I know it couldn't be played in heaven. There's no way. And I'm glad I'm going to heaven, so I don't have to fool with that stuff when we get down there. But golf, now, now golf is beginning to get important to me because I like Tiger Woods. I like to watch Tiger Woods. How many of y'all like to watch Tiger Woods? Ha <laughs> ha, see? And they got, they, the crowds are doubled. But you know what? I was watching the last tournament that he was in and on the second day, he was like, what, eight strokes behind. And I'm thinking to myself, everybody in the world sees everybody else's scores, but everybody also sees Tiger Woods scoring. And nothing he can do to change any of it. He's played that game. It's an individual sport. And at the end of it, he's going to be rewarded according to how, not how others have done, how did he do. Not how Tom Lehman did. Not how uh, Greg Norman did. He's going to be rewarded on how Tiger Woods did. Now, in a similar way, in the scriptural, spiritual walk, that's a secular world that we're talking about. Every one of us, individually, will stand there and be tested as according to our Works. Actually, it's our work. It's in the singular, not in the plural, which means that it's a house that's being built. It's, it's all one house. And whatever's left standing at that time, we'll see whether or not it'll stand the test that God has. So it'll be an individual test. But then secondly, it'll be a revealing test. He says in verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. 
and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, when it says each man's work will become evident, that's a deponent verb. <laughs> and I know that because I read it. <laughs> you say, what's a deponent verb? I don't know. But it's always used in an active sense. I do know that much. In other words, of its own, it will be made evident. What that says to me is, you're not going to change this. And whether you like it, don't like it, or whatever, sad, mad, or glad, it's going to be tested. That's what he's saying. Of its own caliber, of its own value, it will, uh, of necessity, be tested one day. The word evident is the word phaneros. Now, it means to make something apparent, to make it evident. It has the idea of shining a light on something so that it might be clearly seen. I love to deer hunt. And in some of the swamps I've hunted, particularly down in South Carolina, I mean, they get really dark and you hear all kinds of noises. I'm always walking around with my gun. Are they supposed to unload your gun when you go to the car? Not me, buddy. I'm walking out there in those swamps. I've got my gun bloated and my finger ready to push that safety off. I don't know what's in there. And I've used one of those little small lights. You've seen those little, little small uh, lights that you get, these little mini lights? I used to use one of those. Not anymore. I got a flashlight now, buddy. I can cold cock something if it gets up on top of me. I mean, I'm going to take that big light in there. Why? Because I want to see what's in there. And when you have that light, buddy, I mean, it puts the light on it. You can see going out. And that's kind of the idea of the word phaneros. It's the idea of, of bringing every detail out in the presence of the light. Do you ever watch ESPN? Some of you guys that are outdoorsmen, do you ever watch uh, <laughs> the Bassmasters programs? Have you ever seen the, the cartoon characters they have, tight line and sinker? Now, if you haven't, you're missing half your life. Now, some of y'all, quit watching those old stupid programs and soap operas. Go over and watch some good old outdoor fishing shows. I mean, it'll, it'll bless you. You got tight line and sinker. And they're out one night fishing. Now, if you don't know what a nightlight is in your boat, you, you just never have been fishing. But a nightlight is something you put on your boat, fluorescent light, and it'll help you see your line because that's the main thing you want to see. You don't have to see everything else in the boat. It's kind of a, a black light, a, a dark light. And you can see that line when a, when, a, when a fish is hitting your worm. You can see the line twitch and you can know what's happening, see. But tight line and sinker were out one night and tight line said, did you bring that brand new light that I got the other day? He said, yeah, I got it. He says, uh, how about testing it out? <laughs> so Singer gets a hold of the thing and says, are you ready? He says, I'm ready. That's pitch dark. He goes, Fong! and all of a sudden, the birds are flying, the sun is out. It's like daytime. <laughs> Everything is evident. And it's like, wow, what a light, you know, in the middle of the night. That's the idea of Phaneros. You can't see. What is that? What, what is, what is that? I, can't, I can't really tell. Is Tim really living for the Lord? I, I, I can't really see. But one day, the light's going to be brought up and you won't have any question as to what's really real. That's what he's talking about. It'll be made manifest. It'll be brought to light. Nothing will be left out. You will be able to see. And God says, each man will stand this test of his works. Verse 13 says, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. Now, what day is he talking about? The day of Christ. Now, do you understand the difference in the day of Christ and the day of of the Lord. First of all, the technical term is not the day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord is a technical term. The last three and a half years of the 70th week of uh, Daniel. The seven years we believe that, I believe that will be that period of time that God deals with Israel specifically. But I personally think that the day of the Lord is the whole seven years because it's the Lord Jesus Christ who takes the sealed book to start with. So why have any trouble calling the whole period the day of the Lord? Then the great day of the Lord being the last three and a half years. I, I just never have seen the struggle people have with those terminologies that are used. So 
What is the day of Christ then? The day of Christ is the flip side of that. The day of Christ is when we are looking forward to. You know, you dread the day of the Lord if you're not saved. That's when Jesus takes the church out of here and that's when tribulation comes on this earth and that's when he puts an end to sin down here on this earth. It takes seven years. But during that time, we'll bring Israel to their day of atonement, bring them to repentance. A lot of people say, hey, we're spiritual Israel. Well, I don't agree with that, so that's okay. We'll just agree to disagree until you decide to get it right. But during that period of time, the day of Christ is the other side of that. In other words, we look forward to the day of Christ. Flip side, day of the Lord, that seven-year period of time, 70th week of Daniel, involved in which will be the great day of the Lord, Jacob's distress. Now, let's look at this in Scripture and see if we can see it. Sometimes it says the day of our Lord Jesus. Sometimes it says the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in other places, the day of Christ. But the context will show you whether it's something to be looked forward to or something to dread. And you can tell the difference. We look forward to the day of Christ. Look over in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. And we'll just walk through some scriptures here. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. So good. In the first service today, my hearing aid had a blowout, but I got a battery. One of the folks here, Ron Cates, went and got me a battery, and I'm so grateful. Now I can hear you turning. Okay, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord Jesus. May be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You can tell immediately which one you're talking about. Look in verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. It says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 1, Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day... Of our Lord Jesus. You're going to be proud in the day of the Lord Jesus. Obviously, that's not talking about the other day that we're talking, that, that, that has to deal with the wrath of God. Look in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1. Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1. He speaks of it. <clears throat> Something to look forward to. You don't look forward to the day of the Lord. You do look forward to the day of Christ. He says, for I am confident, verse 6, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of whom? Of Christ Jesus. Verse 10, drop down to verse 10 of chapter 1, Philippians. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Look in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 16. Philippians 2 and verse 16. He says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So the day of Christ could be a one day. It can be a time period. We're not worried about that, but it's a, an event that's going to take place, I believe, when Christ comes for his church. Look over in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. We read this from time to time, but just to help remember that there is such a thing as a rapture to the church. People say, no, sir, that word is never used. Well, the word harpego is, and it, it's not a noun, it's a verb. Which would you rather it be? I'd rather be a verb because it's an action. It means to snatch up imminently, suddenly, snatch up. I love that 
the terminology of that because it was in secular Greek, it was used of a wolf who would go into a flock of sheep and suddenly, out of nowhere, snatch up a lamb and go out. So it's the same word. It's a catching up. While rapture was a good way to translate it, but the word harpego simply means a catching up. It's imminent. It's sudden. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the dead bodies. That was the problem in writing 1 Thessalonians. They thought the day of the Lord had come, and, or one of the things. And then the other thing was that they were worried about the dead, the, the, the righteous dead. What happened to their bodies? Verse 17. Then we who are alive, there will be those alive at that time, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Look at verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. You don't comfort somebody with the day of the Lord. You comfort them with the day of Christ. We look forward to the day of Christ. And when Christ takes us up to be with him, immediately there's no more building on that house that we started building when we received Jesus in our life. There's no more way to go back and change a wall here and a board there or whatever. There's no more time to change anything. And the house that we have built by faith or by flesh, whatever it is, will have to stand the test that God has for it one day. Now, Paul continues to explain. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. Give you time to turn back. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. He just continues to explain it. He says it will be made evident. Now he chooses to use another word. It says basically the same thing. Each man's work will become evident. Then he says, for the day, the day of Christ, will show it. The word show it is the word lucy. It means to make something plain for all to see. Same word is translated in 1 Corinthians 1.11, and it means informed. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. It's the same word. In Colossians 1.8, same word. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. There's going to be information that's going to be given on the day that we stand before Christ sometime in the future that nobody down here possibly had. Have you ever wondered about that? The people you think that are doing so much for God, are they doing it according to the flesh or are they doing it according to the Spirit? We don't know down here. Down here, it's, it's hard to know. You watch the Doodah channel, you think everything's of God. But you stand before God one day, buddy, and you will know. It will be made manifest and evident to everyone. Now, that doesn't make me your judge. That makes me my own judge. I examine my own self, and I get in my own closet, and I work it out in my own self, and I walk with God so that my, my building will stand the test. But it may surprise some of us what's going to stand and what's going to burn one day at the testing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The light of his presence on that day when we see him face to face, what we have done down here will be shown. Everyone will see. Now, he goes on. He says, because it is to be revealed with fire. Now, the actual test is fire, not the light. The light will show up things, but the test of fire will prove it out. And so, actually, I think the light is the secondary cause. The fire test, then the light comes on as to what was and what really wasn't. He said it'll be revealed by fire. The word fire in the Old Testament so often is used of the presence, the revealed presence of God. When we stand in his presence, there's going to be a revealing of things, but it's going to be tested by fire. Now, why does God use the term fire? Well, it consumes. 
And that's the only thing. And you've seen earlier that the three things on one side are the gold, silver, and precious stones, and on the other side are the wood, hay, and straw. This is consumable. This is not. This is of the Spirit. This is of the flesh. How have we built our house? Are we living by faith? Down here, like I say, we can't always tell. Up there, everybody will know, and it will stand one day. Look over in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2. If you like to, you don't have to. You might want to just jot these down. These are passages where God revealed himself in fire or as fire. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2. God's appearing to Moses here. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And so therefore that, that, that fire of God's presence. When Moses brought forth the Israelites out of the camp to meet with God at the foot of Mount Sinai. Let's look at that. Exodus 19. Just keep churning over chapter 19, verse 18. Again, God is revealed as fire. Exodus 19, verse 18. He says in verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Then I want you to go to the New Testament to, to Revelation 1 and verse 14. John's on the island of Patmos, and I've been there. Desolate place. But God chose to speak to him. And it's been 65 years since John had heard Jesus' voice. And that was back during the time he was on this earth. And he heard his voice and recognized his voice. But when he turned, what he saw caused him to faint dead away. And I want you to see what he saw there. Jesus, in his glorified state, appeared to John on the island of Patmos. And in verse 14 it says, and his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. Then it goes on in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. When you think of something being tested, and you realize that the two kinds of materials, one is consumable and the other is not, then it makes all the sense in the world that only fire could be that test. It may be instantaneously. It may be that when we see him and we stand in his presence, that everything about us that was the flesh falls away and all that remains is that which God has been able to do through us as a result of our willingness to trust him and walk by faith. Well, fire puts things to the truest test. Back in verse 12 is what I've been quoting from of that different kind of materials. He says, now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. That's the verse that we're, we're building off of. Now, fire is going to reveal the most intimate secrets of man. The things that we hide down here and don't want anybody to know about. In Luke chapter 8, verse 17, it says, for nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to light. You know, it's the fire of God's presence that reveals this. Years ago, I was working at Eagle Irie Baptist Assembly. I'm sure all of you have been there many times. Shaco Springs is Alabama's Baptist Assembly grounds. Eagle Irie Assembly is the state of Virginia's assembly ground for the Baptist, and I worked there for three summers. They kept trying to find a job that I could do. <laughs> I was and so they finally put me in the gift shop. I was the head of the gift shop. Well, I was a title. I had to write my mom and daddy 
I'm director of the gift shop. Right behind the gift shop was a cliff, and there was a road down at the bottom of that cliff, maybe 60 feet down, just sort of a drop-off, a drop-off on the other side, and there was a footbridge that connected the two sides of, that, of those banks there over that road. On the other side of that footbridge were some trails that our, our kids that would come there to Eagle Eye could walk on, hike on. But there was a, a black folks' house, precious people, that lived right there in the corner. Right there as you go across the footbridge, there it said, beautiful old house. Had a balcony to it up, you know, above the front porch. I mean, one of those houses that you drive by and say, boy, that, that is really nice. It was, was a darker wood, you know, and it was just a, just a, a beautiful mountain setting there. It was sitting in the mountains there. And one day... A black lady that lived there, we knew her. She came over, she knew me. She said, Wayne, hurry. She was just weeping and just distraught. She said, hurry, help me. I said, what's wrong? She said, my house is on fire and two children, my two children are in the house. Well, I told the lady that was working with me, I said, go get all the other guys and call the fire department. And I went running across the bridge. It just started, uh, I say just started, probably been going on for 30 minutes or so before she got there. When I got up into the house, the smoke was billowing out. My, my grand, my uncle rather, was a, a captain of the fire department in Roanoke, Virginia. And he told me some things about being in a fire. One of the things he always told me, he said, Wayne Allen said, when, if you're ever in a fire, get on the floor. Stay on the floor because there's a pocket of air that runs along the floor if, you, if, you can, if it hadn't been burning too long. Another thing he told me was if you hit a, a door and the, and the nozzle, I mean the, open, the uh, handle is hot, don't open it because if you do, that oxygen as you open it will blow that whole thing. So a few things I knew, not much. I went running in the house. They said the bedrooms were upstairs. And I got up the steps, but it was so heavy. The smoke is what the, is the problem. You can't breathe. You can't see. Your eyes are watering. I got down on the floor like I was supposed to, and I could barely see. And I, I got to one door and pushed it open. I crawled over, and there was a bed there, and I, there was nobody in the bed. And I went to the next room. The next room, there was, there was four bedrooms. And I got to the fourth one, but it was so hot, my hands almost burned as I tried to touch the door. And I remembered, don't go in that door, because if you open it, it's going to blow. So I said, well, maybe I can go around the back and kick a window in, which wasn't real smart. I got out the window on the roof, and as I worked my way around, I was just getting ready to kick in a window when somebody down, down on the bottom, the fire department had come. They said, get off the roof, Wayne, get off the roof. Quick, quick, get off the roof. It's about to blow. Well, I remember cutting myself up, trying to get off that roof, scratched myself all up, and I got down, and sure enough, it blew, and I mean, just almost took the whole upstairs off. I don't know what caused that, but something just erupted inside. I stood there and waited and waited for hours because I was so distraught that I couldn't find those two little boys. Well, we found one of them. He was out down the street. He had set the fire, five years old, playing with matches in the bed. But his little two-year-old brother burned to death in that fire. I'll never forget that when we found that little body. But you know, inside that fire, something overwhelmed me. That beautiful house that I had always looked at and thought to myself, I'd love to have one like that someday had so burned down, the only thing that was left standing was a stone fireplace. And the places where they had built up around the hearth there of the fireplace, everything else was ashes. That beautiful house, and that's all that was left. That is exactly the picture that Paul is trying to draw. It's the fire that consumes. You see, you may build a house for somebody and say, this is a stone house. Is there any wood in it? No, sir, buddy. Everything's made of stone. But maybe you lied. Maybe inside some of the, the stone, that was really veneer, and there were wooden beams, but you didn't tell anybody about it. But one day that house catches on fire, and immediately everybody knows that you had lied. What you had hidden and thought nobody else saw, the fire consumed it. And the only thing that's left 
are those things which are non-consumable. That's the test. We're going to stand before God one day. You say, Wayne, what's it going to be like? I don't know. All I know is what's in here. But I do get the idea that somehow standing in his presence, and I said this earlier, but I say it again, it may be instantaneously. So overwhelmed at the glory of God as we stand in his presence and the fire and the light. And as we stand there, everything about us that we didn't trust God in, that we didn't come to the altar and repent of and confess and rebuild under the grace of God, all of a sudden just disappears. And what's left is that which only was done as a result of faith and trusting the grace of God. Let me throw something in here. When you die, you can't do anything about the house. As long as you're living, you can. Now, thought hit me. Where does confession and repentance down here on this life come in? I think it comes in when, hey, listen, you're building a house and you've got a wall that's crooked and the architect tells you that wall is crooked and you repent, which means you changed your mind. You went in, tore that wall out and went back and built it the way it ought to be built. You've got time to do those things now, folks. But one day, that time's gonna be taken away. No way you're going to go back and correct anything. And the fire is going to consume everything. The flesh did down here. And listen, men on this earth may have rewarded you and applauded you, but it was flesh. And standing before God, you may feel very embarrassed if you're not living a life that the Corinthians were not living and Paul was trying to get them to live. That's his whole point. Why attach yourself to men? You're going to stand. He's going to stand. You better just attach yourself to Christ and trust Him and walk in His Word and be what He wants you to be. It's an individual test. It's a revealing test. The fire will reveal it. It'll, it's a consuming fire. But the third thing, it's a quality test. And behold, this is hitting me right between the eyes. Look again at verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. It's interesting. It'll become evident. It'll show it and be revealed. So we know that. And the fire itself, it shows you there what tests, not the light, but the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Listen to me. Not the quantity. The quality of each man's work. Whoa. Billy Graham was on one of these programs. Y'all been watching lately how they've been using him and the articles, I, I'm telling you, it just blesses my socks off. So I've heard people cut him down. I'll tell you what, I would not let those words out of, uh, come out of my mouth. Here's a man that says he's been imperfect. I loved what he said. He said, what would you do if you could go back and do it all over again? He said, less. <laughs> and they asked him, he said, what limitations did you have? He said, my own self, my own flesh, all those years. The humility of the man just blesses me. But you see, it's going to be the quality, not the quantity. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to be quantity. Ho, ho. No, 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 no. But that quantity that has the quality of trusting God, works of faith, believing God. God, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you would. And living as a surrendered vessel so that God through you can do those works. That's quality works. That's what those works that no man could reproduce. Only God could do the quality of that work not the quantity. Quality is a good translation. James uses that word in James 1. You know the, the passage there in 21 through 25, it talks about how you're supposed to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. And in verse 24 of James chapter 1, he says, for once he's looked away, or looked at himself and gone away, he's looked in the mirror, God's shown him what he wants to show him. 
It says, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. It's the same word. What the makeup of his life really is, whether it's flesh or whether it's of the spirit. Same exact word. Now, the word for test here is what I hopefully have enough time to share with you. I don't know how many times you preach on this and people just sit there and squirm. Oh, good grief. Why does he have to preach on this? I'm scared to death. I don't want to hear this. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. That's a shame if you have that thought in your mind this morning. Because these, this test is not to prove what's wrong about you. It's to prove what's right about you. Now, why in the world would that scare you? I'll tell you why it would scare you. If you're living like the Corinthians, that ought to scare you half to death. Because you're not living like God wants you to live. And you know that this morning. And you know God knows that. We don't. We're impressed that you're here. God knows it. And I'll tell you, that ought to put the fear of God in your heart. But it's for you, not against you. The word dokumazo is the word used there for test. You say, Wayne, thanks a lot. What does that mean? <laughs> you know how Brother Spiros always says, there are two Greek words. <laughs> Bing, bong. No, there's two Greek words. Well, the Greeks had more than one word. That's why he always says that. It says what it means. You're not going to mess up. Dokumazo is a different word than pirazo, which is another word for test. Now, hey, pirazo can be used in a good sense, but it's always to bring about a negative quality. In John chapter 6, when Jesus was sitting there and all these people were there needed, were hungry, and he says, what, what are you going to do to feed them? You feed them. And he says he did this to test them. Pirazo. He's doing something there to point out something that's unworthy about them that they couldn't do. But it was a good thing. They needed to know this. But let me explain it this way. Let's say Kent's sitting down front, and let's just say I walk up to Kent one day. I say, Kent, I found some pure gold in my backyard. I was digging the other day for worms, and I found some pure gold, and I want you to have it. I just want to give it to you. God put it on my heart to give it to you. <laughs> and I walk away, and Kent's sitting there thinking, Barbara, he, he doesn't know gold from dirt. I'm going to prove to him that this isn't gold. And he puts it to the test, not to prove that it's good, but to prove that it's bad. It's exactly what Jesus was doing in John 6. He says he did this to test them, to show them what their flesh was incapable of doing and the evil of their flesh and to show them the difference of what he could do. So Pirazzo has the idea of proving something to show you what's wrong with it. Dokumazo is a totally different word. Never used but this way. And I go to Kent and I say, Kent, I found me some metal in my backyard. I was digging for worms. Now, I don't know. I don't know what's in it. But I, I'll give it to you. Kent takes it and I walk away and he says, gracious sakes, I think there's gold in there. Whoa! So he puts it to the test to prove what is right about it, what is good and pure about it, and says, lo and behold, that's gold. Anytime God is testing you and me in trials or whatever, it's dokumazo. And he's not just making us genuine. That, in a sense, is correct because he burns off the dross. But in a bigger sense, he's proving us to be genuine. We were genuine when we entered the trial. We'll be genuine when we come out of the trial. And particularly, we'll be seen to be that because all the dross has been burned off and people can see the pure gold of his presence that's in our life. That's why trials come our way. Never to hurt us. It's always a word that's for us, not against us. So this test that we're going to have by fire one day when we stand before God is not going to be a test to prove what's wrong about us, but a test to reveal what's right about what we've done while we've lived on this earth.
And I'll tell you what, if we've got a hard head in here, <laughs> I was a hard head for years, so you're probably here. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, come on, preacher. Brother, my heart goes to you because I'm going to stand and you're going to stand. Go on and have that attitude. You can get by with it in America. Why, you can come to church and tell everybody you're a Christian, live like you want to, like the devil during the week, and they'll still think that you're okay. But you can't get by with it with God one day. You will stand in his presence. I mean, that's absolute, folks. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And he goes on to say, if after tested by fire, your work remains, there'll be a reward. But if it doesn't remain after being tested by fire, you will suffer loss. Let me explain that to you. Remember a while ago it says, save so as by fire? That's all? We talked about that passage we read. Let me just explain it this way. Not this about time anyway. <laughs> if there were a group of sailors and a man hired them and said, listen, I've got a cargo ship and I'm going to pay you big time. There is a reward if you can get that ship with its cargo from here to there. But you must bring that cargo with you. If you don't, there will be no reward. And let's just say some of the sailors decided to bring a few things on that weren't supposed to be brought on. Someone brings a case of whiskey or something, and they all get drunk on the ship one night, just having a great time, and their perceptions clouded, and they got into a storm. And because they were in a storm, and because they had been subjecting them things to themselves to things that clouded their mind, they shipwrecked that cargo ship on rocks. As a result, helicopters were flown in, and they were rescued. All of them were rescued, but the cargo was lost. But with the loss of the cargo goes the loss of the reward. They're saved, but they suffered loss. Christ said, hey, I've put my spirit within you, in Paul, in Cephas, in Apollos, in Wayne, in Kent, in Bob, and whatever. I've put my spirit within you. Peter says, I've given you everything for life and godliness, and I've set you on a trip, and you're building a house. Now, when you get there, we'll find out how you did it, because I want to brag to everybody and show them what's right about you. And the only reason you'd be ashamed is if you've never taken your Christianity serious. That ought to scare you half to death, to stand there amongst others with nothing to show for what God has given you. That would be the epitome of agony. But in heaven, nothing to do with our salvation. Everything to do with reward in heaven. Not proving the man, proving the work. Let's pray. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.